0: Nuclear Semantics When is radioactive nuclear waste not radioactive nuclear waste? When the Nuclear Regulatory Commission pretends it isn't and changes a definition to support this skullduggery. In Utah, this plays out because adjacent to the ancestral lands of the White Mesa Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, a uranium mine that is licensed to allow the processing of uranium ore is aiming to expand its operations outside of its current license to include all forms of nuclear waste. This is not supposed to be allowed. So how is it happening? Ah, it takes a genuine expert to explain this. And she tells us, The waste are supposed
1: to be the waste from the processing of any ore for the uranium or thorium content. So what the NRC did was develop a guidance which said that any uranium-bearing material that they process is defined as ore. So that means they can receive various uranium-bearing wastes, and as long as they process those wastes and extract some uranium, then they're considered to be ore. I personally think that this was a violation of the Atomic Energy Act.
0: Well, when Sarah Fields, program director of the group Uranium Watch and a veteran anti-nuclear activist, shares her well-researched insights into what's going on at the Utah-based White Mesa Mill, it's easy to understand how simply we can all be moved from thinking that there are at least some limits and boundaries to the nuclear industry into a much worse place of understanding that we've all just been shoved even deeper into that terrible, horrifying seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear- the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevy. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we consider manipulations around the White Mesa Mine in Utah where the permitted processing of uranium ore is being expanded to make it an international destination for radioactive waste from as far away as Japan. We talk with Sarah Fields, Program Director of Uranium Watch, for background on the mine, the NRC's languaging sleight of hand to allow this illegal expansion of the mine's activities, and pushback from activists led by members of the White Mesa Ute community and the Mountain Ute tribe. Then we talk with yolanda badback a member of the ute mountain ute tribe and a leader of the white mesa concerned community she tells us about an upcoming spiritual walk and protest against this expansion of the mine we will also have nuclear news from around the world linda pence gunter with the nuclear hot seat hot story numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than any candidates for office in the U.S. midterm elections have bothered to mention. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 11, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In Ukraine on October 7, shelling damaged a power line providing electricity to the reactor unit 6 at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, forcing the unit to temporarily rely on its emergency diesel generators instead. Power was restored later that day. It was knocked out again on Saturday the 8th and only restored on October 9th. In all these instances, backup power was provided by diesel generators, which only have 10 days worth of fuel for operating, and there's no word as to whether the fuel that has been used has been topped off. Russians now claim that Zaporizhia is theirs, to which to which both Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and the IAEA have said, no, that is not the case. But the Kremlin is mandating that workers at Europe's largest nuclear plant must now decide whether to sign employment contracts with and follow the directives of a new Russian firm the Kremlin asserts is the plant's owner, or whether to stay committed to Ukrainian operator Energo Atom and face retribution from the Russian forces that control Zaporizhia. Rafael Grossi head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, said, The staff at the plant is operating under almost unbearable circumstances, the stress, the uncertainty, not knowing what is going to happen. On October 1st, Ihor Murashov, Zaporizhzhia's general director, who had overseen the site throughout its occupation, was kidnapped and detained by Russian forces. He was returned 24 hours later. Grossi further commented, This is not a sustainable way to run a nuclear power plant. In response to the growing threat of Russia using nuclear weapons, last week, U.S. President Biden said, We have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was referring to the possibility that Russia might use nuclear weapons against Ukraine. And remembering the 13 tense days in October 1962 that brought the U.S. and the Soviet Union to the brink of nuclear war. In this week's Hot Story, Linda Pence Gunter explores the implications of the current rhetoric.
2: As we near the 60 year mark since the start of the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's truly horrifying to realize that our present times are considered to be the closest to nuclear war we have been since those 13 terrifying days in 1962. What saved us then was cooler heads prevailing, most notably those of US President Kennedy and Russian Premier Khrushchev. And there was a willingness on both sides to pull back from the brink, not only rhetorically, but through meaningful actions. Khrushchev removed his nuclear missiles from Cuba, while the US publicly declared it would not invade the island. Privately, the US also agreed to dismantle its ballistic missiles stationed in Turkey. Despite this, the obvious lesson was not learned, that nuclear weapons serve only one purpose, the mutual destruction of all of us. Instead, the nuclear arms race escalated to obscene heights, and there are still at least 13,000 nuclear weapons in the world, leaving us perpetually on the edge of Armageddon. And it was that word, Armageddon, that current US President Joe Biden used last week when he said at a Democratic gathering, We have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis." Kennedy had met Khrushchev prior to the 1962 standoff, and Biden described Russian President Vladimir Putin as a guy I know fairly well. But so far that familiarity hasn't relieved the current atomic tensions. What could happen? Russia could use a single tactical nuclear weapon, a term that covers a whole panoply of so-called short-range weapons armed with a nuclear warhead. They can be launched from the ground, air or sea, and even from a truck bed. A single weapon has a typical explosive yield of between 10 and 100 kilotons. The Hiroshima bomb was 15 kilotons, so that's not exactly small. The idea of using a single tactical nuclear weapon has been downplayed as maybe not all that bad, thus normalizing something that should instead be outlawed. Just hide in your basement for a few days while the radiation dissipates and it'll be okay. But it's that kind of thinking that prompted Biden to use the word Armageddon in the first place. I don't think there is any such thing as the ability to easily use a tactical nuclear weapon and not end up with Armageddon, Biden said because of course it wouldn't be okay at all. Even after the radiation levels drop, the soil and water and therefore food sources would be contaminated. Essential infrastructure would be destroyed. There would be countless fatalities and many sick and dying. To use any nuclear weapon would be an abomination. The White House has also said it would deliver what it described as a decisive response should Russia use nuclear weapons. Again, it's unclear what this means. Would the US reply with a nuclear attack of its own? But what all of this does prove is that the possession of nuclear weapons isn't deterring anything. What we are most frightened of right now is the possibility that Russia will use nuclear weapons and the US might retaliate. Those fears would vanish if nuclear weapons did too. That is why continuing to push for signatures and ratifications of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is so important, because it's the one treaty that spells out the immorality of nuclear weapons and the devastating humanitarian impacts that will result even from their so-called limited use. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. Here in the U.S., the
0: Department of Health and Human Services has ordered a $290 million supply of a medication used for injuries caused by radiation. Despite the alarm at President Biden's Armageddon comment, Health and Human Services said in a statement that the purchase of the drug, called N-Plate, is part of its, quote, long-standing ongoing efforts by the administration for strategic preparedness and response to better prepare the U.S. for the potential health impacts of a wide range of threats to national security. But at the current retail price of $4,500 per dose, this purchase represents only about 64,000 courses of the drug, less than the amount that would be required by the U.S. if the nation were close to nuclear war with Russia but certainly enough to cover the high-level politicians who would all be sheltering in Ravens Rock in the D.C. area. We will link to an article on best places to survive nuclear war in the U.S., which has more to do with your local mechanic's service bay than it does some prepper paradise in the middle of Wyoming. In Alabama... A special NRC inspection of the Farley-1 nuclear reactor following a complicated reactor trip in August found that multiple mistakes had been made and the scram occurred when a technician accidentally dropped a floor tile. It beggars belief. Over to Japan for this week's Nuclear Hot Seat,
2: Nuclear Hot
0: Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat. In Japan, where Tokyo Electric Power Company is planning on dumping over 1.5 million tons of tritium-contaminated radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean, it's been learned that TEPCO overstated the safety of the treated water by demonstrating the quote-unquote safety of said water with a dosimeter that cannot detect tritium. That's because tritium emits beta radiation, and the dosimeter used only registers gamma. If the safety of the treated water was emphasized in this manner, it could be perceived as manipulation of impressions or, as a woman from Fukushima Prefecture said, lies. And that's why, TEPCO, once again, you are this week's
2: Nuclear Hot Seed,
0: none that's out of the week. Japanese activists gathered at the offices of Tokyo Electric Power Company on October 5th to protest the plan to discharge nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. The Korean Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries has urged the international community to discuss Japan's plan to discharge this water from Fukushima into the ocean, saying this radioactive water may have a serious impact on health, safety, and ecosystem of neighboring nations meaning, among others, Korea. Japan has refuted this call from Korea, claiming the discharge of radioactive water should not be seen as an act of marine dumping, which is illegal under international law, specifically something called the London Convention. The Korean Oceans Minister is considering whether to petition an international court over Tokyo's decision and Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry has started considering revisions to related laws to stretch the lifespan of reactors, originally set at 40 years, to beyond 60 years. Or, as the nuclear industry has joked for the past decade, is there life after 60? For reactors, that's what they want. We'll have this week's featured interviews in just a moment, but first... It would be nice if wishing for a nuke-free world would make it happen, but it won't. The entire fuel chain, from uranium mining on mostly indigenous lands that leave a legacy of radioactive waste, from unremediated tailings it mines, to manufacturing nuclear weapons and reactor fuel, the known health dangers of living near a nuclear reactor, all of which leach radioactive tritium into the groundwater, to the forever legacy of so-called spent fuel rods and, of course, nuclear bombs, all of it is out there, poisoning the land, air, water, and, unfortunately, us. And all of it is supported by a financially well-funded nuclear industry PR propaganda push that spends millions every month to get their message embedded into the news cycle and the public's brains. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. Now in its 12th year, Nuclear Hot Seat is the only podcast where you can reliably get a one-hour hit of honest nuclear information every week, including interviews with genuine experts and frontline activists, international news, numbnuts of the week, and the hot story. We bring you stories and insights that the nukesters and their political minions would rather you not know. So if you've come to value Nuclear Hot Seat, support the show. It's time. Send us a donation right now. Don't be shy. Any and every amount helps. How about $5? That's the same as an overpriced cup of coffee here in the U.S. Make it $5 a month. Buy us a cup of coffee a month. Or make it more. Be it a one-time donation or monthly recurring support, you'll be helping to keep Nuclear Hot Seat up and running, providing you with cutting-edge information on nuclear. Right now, hit pause and go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and do what you can. Know that whatever you can do, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here are this week's featured interviews. This week, we focus on what's wrong at and with the White Mesa uranium mill in Utah. We start with Sarah Fields. She's Program Director of Uranium Watch and has worked on uranium and other nuclear issues for more than 20 years. Here, we discuss how the White Mesa Uranium Mill is being allowed to process radioactive waste material from around the United States and from as far away as Canada, Europe, and Japan. There are also plans in place for the mine to accept materials going back 77 years to the start of the Manhattan Project. The move is being opposed by several environmental groups, including those linked to the Grand Canyon, and is a focus for protests from the Ute Mountain Ute tribe. We'll talk with a representative of that tribe shortly, but first, here's Sarah Fields of Uranium Watch. We spoke on Saturday, October 8, 2022. Sarah Fields, thank you so much for being with us today on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I've listened to your program many times, and it's a very important program to have.
0: Thank you so much. You have been active in uranium and other nuclear issues for more than 20 years and currently serve as program director for Uranium Watch. What are some of the issues you have been dealing with most recently?
1: I continue to pay attention to the White Mesa Uranium Mill, which is the only licensed operating conventional uranium mill in the United States. I'm particularly following the company, which is Energy Fuels Resources, USA Incorporated, the owner of the mill, and their efforts to expand the operation to separate rare earth elements
0: When was the White Mesa Mill started, and what was its purpose when it began?
1: The mill commenced operation in the early 1980s, and it was supposed to be just a conventional uranium mill, and it would have a lifetime of about 15 years. I mean, this is what the original owners of the mill projected and at the time the mill was licensed by the nuclear regulatory commission because it was before the state of utah took over authority for uranium mills in utah they constructed three tailings impoundments one to hold liquids and two to hold tailings they just established the mill to process uranium ore from the Colorado Plateau. So this was conventional ore that they were getting from uranium mines, mostly in San Juan County and some on the north rim of the Grand Canyon.
0: What has been the impact of this mine already on the water, the land and the people, specifically the Ute Mountain White Mesa community?
1: This was the mill, not the mine. The mill was built on land that was adjacent to the White Mesa Ute community. There is one letter in the early documents that says that the White Mesa, not the White Mesa community, but the Ute Mountain Ute tribe, its center is in Toyahawk, Colorado, supported the operation of the mill. However, at that time, there was very little knowledge about uranium mills and what their impacts would be on the community. And the NRC did a very poor job in the beginning of establishing, let's say, background for the groundwater. The most significant impact of building the mill was the destruction. Of numerous archaeological sites. White Mesa is its own archaeological district, and it was found eligible for inclusion in the National Register. And these sites were Kivas and what went for a house back in those days where the Native people dug into the couch and then put Ramada-type structures over them. So their burial sites could have been and should have been a national monument. Instead, these sites were destroyed as part of the development of the mill. And if the mill expands, other additional sites will be destroyed. As the mill was constructed, it was the first uranium mill to have line tailings impoundments. One of the reasons why there's problems at all the old uranium mills that have been closed is because they didn't have line tailings impoundments. But even line tailings impoundments will eventually leak. There is some groundwater contamination at the mill site they know that some of the contamination came from an old laboratory. So they did various tests in the laboratory and they just dumped the various chemicals down the drains. So there's a chloroform bloom. And then there's other indications of possible contamination coming from the existing tailings impoundments themselves. But energy fuels and the state of Utah does not believe these changes in the groundwater chemistry are caused by leakage from the actually tailings impoundments. But the community on White Mesa and the White Ute Mountain Ute Environmental Department feel that this is an indication of leaking from the tailings impoundment. And then, of course, you have emissions from the mill. From the mill operation. And one of the biggest complaints of the people on White Mesa is the smell when the mill operates yellow cake and emissions from the uranium radon also emitted, but the agencies claim that they're within certain allowable parameters.
0: We discussed What those parameters exist of and why they are false in the work of Mary Olson and Gender and Radiation Health Project, which shows that all of the levels that are set for, hey, this is an acceptable level of radiation, is really based on an adult male model and that women are twice as vulnerable to the radiation and little girls are 10 times more vulnerable to the radiation than what is set for the limit. So anything that is considered to be acceptable probably is not. Right. Has there been any impact directly on the Grand Canyon or the Grand Canyon's water?
1: No, Energy Fuels is developing a uranium mine on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. They did operate a mine on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. And I really don't know enough about the impacts from that mine, which is now closed on the actual Grand Canyon. But there is concern by the Havasupai community People who are working on protecting the Grand Canyon related to this uranium mine that is under development, though the development is now on standby. The mine was originally called the Canyon Mine, now it's called the Pinion Plain Mine. But all of their conventional mines except one are currently on standby. They're not mining any ore at this time.
0: You said that the White Mesa Mill was founded in the 1980s. Has it operated consistently since then, or have there been stretches of time when it was not in operation?
1: Oh, definitely been stretches of time that it hasn't been operational. Even now, their operations are minimal. They've been focusing on processing monazite sands that come from the state of Georgia, and they remove uranium, and they also are processing the monazite sands to obtain a rare earth carbonate concentrate. So the mill has operated off and on over the years. What saved the operation of the mill was the changes in NRC regulations that allowed them to receive and process what they call alternate feed material. And these are basically waste from other mineral processing operations. And they got paid to receive these materials and then process the materials for uranium and dispose of them in the tailings impoundments. So this has been a major, major concern over the years. And I really got involved with the White Mesa Mill a number of years ago because I was challenging the license amendments which allowed the mill to receive these alternate feed materials from cleanups of different processing facilities. Some of them that produced quite a lot of material
0: That's a perfect lead-in to what is now proposed for the White Mesa Mill, which is a change in its business model to operate as a waste disposal service for radioactive waste streams, up to 15 different radioactive waste streams that have been approved from across the United States and as far away as Canada, Europe, and Japan. How is it that this site in Utah is being targeted as an international waste dump because that's what it looks like.
1: Well, back in the early 90s, when there was some waste coming in from the state of Washington, the NRC went through a process and they developed a guidance. And the tailings at a licensed uranium mill are defined as 11E2 byproduct material. And that's a certain provision in the Atomic Energy Act. And the waste are supposed to be the waste from the processing of any ore for the uranium or thorium content. So, what the NRC did was develop a guidance which said that any uranium bearing material that they process is defined as ore. So that means they can receive various uranium-bearing wastes, and as long as they process those wastes and extract some uranium, then they're considered to be ore. I personally think that this was a violation of the Atomic Energy Act, but the issue has never really gone to court. And then when the state of Utah took over regulation, of the mill in 2004, they agreed with the NRC guidance. And since then, there have been, as you mentioned, several license amendments that allow them to receive different waste. There haven't been a great many approved in the last couple of years. So it's unsure how much other waste will be approved for shipment and processing at the mill. They're still receiving some waste because the waste continued to be generated. That includes the waste from a Port Hope facility in in Canada. But some of the other waste, they've already been received. They've already been reprocessed. So right now, it's kind of a trickle. But the cumulative impacts of all these wastes have affected the chemistry of the tailings impoundments. They've allowed for the disposal of thorium, which is not prevalent in the ore in the Colorado Plateau. And it's allowed for disposal that was never contemplated when the mill was originally built. It was never contemplated by the environmental impact statement. It was never contemplated when the federal government passed the Uranium Mill Tailings Radiation Control Act. It was never contemplated when the EPA and the NRC developed their regulations that were applicable to uranium mills. So it's been a continual bad situation But based on the current regulations and the current regulatory and statutory regime, it's still allowed.
0: It seems that so much of this is based on a semantic manipulation to say that anything that is radioactive waste has uranium in it. Because uranium is, of course, the source of all the other radioactive products and isotopes and the rest. But that's a manipulation because it's not the raw ore. This is other materials. So it appears that White Mesa Mill is functioning as a radioactive waste disposal business and being set up to do that even more, but yet it's not regulated as one. How can that be? Well, there are a lot of
1: situations related to mining and milling that are contrary to or appear to be contrary to statutes and regulations, but they're still happening. It won't be until there's an effective legal challenge of this whole plan.
0: What would it take to put together a legal action and take this to court?
1: Well, I'm not in a position to do that. There was a time when I was challenging this before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but I didn't have an attorney who understood the situation who would take that to court. And that was before 2004. Uranium Watch is basically me. I don't have a lot of funding. It would be up to the either the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe or another more well-funded organization to do that. And there's been a lot of discussion over the years, but it hasn't happened yet. We do challenge when there is a proposed license amendment, organizations and uh, the White Mesa Ute community do submit comments But there hasn't been a really effective legal challenge of this.
0: How does the processing of rare earths fit into this picture? Here
1: is another situation where the white mesa mill owners want to develop another stream of revenue because actually they're in business to make money. So this new stream of revenue will come from the processing of monazite sands to first remove the uranium and then also to remove rare earth elements because monazite sands contain uranium and thorium and also rare earth. So they're getting some ore from a facility in the state of Georgia. But All they can do now is create a rare earth concentrate, but that concentrate has to be processed further to extract the individual rare earth elements. And in the past, that was primarily accomplished in China. And also they are now able to do it in Estonia. So all they do is create this concentrate, which is like a big fruit salad mix, but you need to separate out the grapes and the pineapple and the apples before they can make use of these rare earth elements. So they're shipping the concentrate to Estonia, but what they want to do on site, and there's a lot of discussion of this in their news releases over the last couple of years, They want to be able to separate out the individual rare earth elements. And they talk about the experts that they've hired and what their plans are. But they still need to apply to the Utah Division of Waste Management and Radiation Control for a permit to be able to do this. They haven't submitted an application yet to... That division.
0: Is there any kind of pushback organized, either by community or by any of the groups that do oppose nuclear in its various forms, to the licensing of energy fuels for this next scheme with rare earths?
1: Well, I've been talking to the Utah Division of Waste Management and Radiation Control about this. The big issue is that the waste that go into a uranium mills tailings impoundments have to be waste from the processing of ore for its uranium or thorium content. So if they have another process to separate out the individual rare earth elements, the waste from those processes will not be waste from the processing of ore. There'll be waste from the separation of a rare earth element concentrate. And I do not believe that that would be legal because it would no longer be a uranium mill. It would be some other type of mineral processing operation. But the state of Utah will not make an opinion about this until Energy Fuels submits an application to them to develop this type of operation that would separate out the individual rare earth elements. So until they submit an application, they're not going to make a decision about that. And I have a letter from them to that effect, because I've brought it to their attention a couple of times. This is something I'm working on and also intend to bring it more to the public's attention. Next week, I will be talking at the Western Mining Action Network conference in Reno, and I'll be on a panel, and I'll be talking about this issue We'll do more to bring it to the public's attention
0: what can we do to help derail or defer or just demolish the possibility of energy fuels even putting in this proposal
1: i think publicizing this plan that they have to develop a totally different type of mineral processing operation I kind of think they know that that's not going to be allowed at the mill but they're still promoting it in order to get investors. Hmm. And it's definitely one of the things I'm working on and I have a lot of other issues that are on my plate so I haven't been able to do as much as I would like but As a follow-up to the conference and the talk that I will be giving, I'm going to write some news releases and provide information to the media that covers the mill. And also, on the 22nd of October, when there's the White Mesa March and Spiritual Walk, I will also be talking to the media at that time.
0: Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you would like to offer at this time? One thing
1: that I am concerned about is the possible expansion of the mill. Right now, they have five tailings impoundments. One's been closed. One is almost full, but it receives some material to receive liquid processing fluids, and one is where they're depositing the mill tailings. I don't want those tailings impoundments to be filled up. One of the things we're concerned about and opposed to is the use of the White Mesa Mill to receive and process waste from the cleanup of abandoned uranium mines, whether it's abandoned uranium mines on federal lands or abandoned uranium mines on tribal lands. As you probably know, there's a lot of efforts by the Environmental Protection Agency and by Navajo Nation to clean up abandoned uranium mines on tribal lands. Energy Fuels has talked about receiving the waste and materials from these cleanups and then trucking them to the mill and then processing them. So if cell full, the tailings impoundments get filled up with the waste from these abandoned uranium mill processing, they might get a license to build two additional tailings impoundments. They've already applied for a license to build those tailings impoundments. But the state of Utah has not approved those applications yet. If the state does approve those applications, there will be a big fight. When they have an initial approval, that's the time when there will be an opportunity for public comment. And then challenges to the license amendment should they approve the new tailings impoundments. So anything that can be done to limit the amount of materials and what comes into the mill will eventually lead to the closure of the mill, which is the goal of the White Mesa community and the goal of Uranium Watch and the goal of the Green Canyon Trust and other organizations.
0: Well, Sarah... We want you to stay in touch with us and let us know should any benchmarks be met, either in terms of things we need to oppose or things we need to celebrate. I'm always looking forward to that. And for now, I want to thank you for all of the brilliant, hard work you have been carrying on for decades now, as well as for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. That was Sarah Fields, Program Director of. Uranium Watch. We'll have a link up to the group's website, uraniumwatch.org, on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode number 590. To give you an idea of what the White Mesa Mill is going to be taking on, if they can't be stopped, it's more than 15 different radioactive waste streams, which have been approved for shipment to the mill from contaminated sites across the United States and as far away as Canada, Europe, and Japan. Here in the U.S., it includes three Superfund sites, eight Fooswrap sites, which are those being cleaned up by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, such as in North St. Louis, areas contaminated by the Manhattan Project, which was begun in 1943 in Los Alamos, so we're talking about almost 80 years ago this waste started to be created. And there's more, from waste generated by industrial facilities in the nuclear fuel cycle and mining sectors, wastes containing dangerous heavy metals, and hazardous waste legally classified as alternative feed. That sounds like going vegan, and it's not. Specifically impacted by these nuclear intentions are members of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, with lands adjacent to the mine and a water supply that comes from an aquifer that sits below the mine. They're holding their annual spiritual walk and protest on Saturday, October 22nd. To learn more about that event, I spoke with Yolanda Badbeck, a member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and the group White Mesa Concerned Community. We spoke on Saturday, October 8, 2022. Yolanda Badback, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Nuclear Hot Seat. You're welcome. Good morning. First of all, let's learn a little bit about your background.
3: I reside here in White Mesa. I live on the Ute community here. I'm a tribal member of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe. I reside here all my life. I was Raised here. I went to school in Blanding. I have four kids. Um, basically, I'm just a stay at home mom.
0: A stay at home mom who gets to do a lot of work on behalf of your people. <laughs> Specifically, we're talking about the impact of the White Mesa Mill as a uranium mine. What has been the impact on your people and on you, possibly personally, and members of your family?
3: Our community runs on well water. Our well water towers are just north of our reservation. The impact of our community is that a lot of our health issue has gone down. All of our native herbs, native stuff that we use are no longer around in the area. We have to travel far distance to gather some of our stuff that we need for the winter basically just trying to have a clean environment for our community
0: here and a good water. And the water has been compromised by the mine in the years that it has been operating. Is that correct? Our water here
3: is, it's well water. We run on well water in our whole community. And what we're trying to do is try not to have it The mill is just like four miles north of our reservation. And we're trying for it not to seep into the aquifer, into our well water.
0: What has been done by the White Mesa Ute people and your allies to fight against this
3: mine? With our tribe, they're out there trying to speak up for us and do some stuff. But the way how I look at it is that I... And my family are the only ones that's been fighting for this meal for a, a long time. And we will continue fighting to close it or to have them remove it or somewhere, you know, where it's not going to be close to our reservation. The tribe hasn't really put a lot of input into it, but they're out there helping us out with whatever they can. DAP is keeping track of our water resource by going and testing our water twice a month to make sure everything's going well for us in the community.
0: When you say EIP, what does that stand for? Environmental. It's what the tribe. And what is
3: being found in the water? When we have our tap water, when we turn it on now, we have a really, really bad odor to our water. So we don't drink our water. We buy water. We shower in it and do our dishes in it. But other than that, we don't drink it. But if we're gonna cook, we make sure our water's boiled before we put our items into the water.
0: It's now being proposed that the mine change its business model. It has been a uranium mine, and there are times when it's been in operation. There's times when it has not been in operation. But now it is proposing to operate as a waste disposal service for radioactive waste streams from across the United States and as far away as Canada, Europe, and Japan. How is that information being met, and how is that being fought against if it is
3: it's the only operation mill in the whole united states that's open so basically everywhere whatever they're getting rid of their waste and everything it's being dumped here near our reservation so we've got to do what we got to do is by standing up and a voice or opinion to let people know what we are dealing with near our reservation and if we don't then it's going to expand and pretty soon it's going to be close to our reservation and we'll just be one step into it. Then it's gonna we're gonna be in a big old bind there if that ever happens. If we don't voice our opinion. So right now we're voicing our opinion that this is what we were dealing with all our lives. And we're trying to have them clean it up or move it somewhere because we don't want that near our reservation. Our population's only like 250 the max. And a lot of our elderlies here in our community are no longer with us. They had all deceased. Now we have to think about our next future generations that's on a reservation that's being transported to school on a daily basis. So that's who we got to think about now and have them have clean water resource and have a good clean air for our next future generation.
0: On October 22nd, the White Mesa Ute community spiritual walk and protest will be held. What is that event and is this the first time it's happening or is it something that takes place annually? It's been taking place annually.
3: It's a walk that we do to voice our opinion, to let people know that this is what we're fighting against. We all meet in the community building at 11 o'clock, and we walk all the way up to the entrance of the White Mason Mill. After that, we come back to the community again. Then when we're in the community, that's when we start speaking out to letting people know how the community feels about the things that we are dealing with and how we would be able to get information, more information to address things and just kind of share all the information we got that people are willing to share with us.
0: Why is this called a spiritual walk and protest?
3: When the mill has been in the process of being built, our ancestors were buried there, and when the mill was in the process, they had digged up the remainings, and still to this day, we don't know where the remainings are now.
0: That's and terrible. We had, we had
3: Kivas in the area there, too, that were destroyed.
0: So, this is a walk to honor ancestors. Speak to us a little bit more about the spiritual aspect of it.
3: We try to engage the remembrance of our ancestors that were disturbed there at the time. We want to have them give them that opportunity to be free again for what they had did to disturbing them when they were laying in peace before. And when this had started up, we are no longer be able to know where the remainings are to actually put them in a safe place to where they could be laid and rest in peace, peacefully so that's the reason why we do this spiritual walk annually to let people know that we deal with this kind of situation here near our reservation. Wanting our people to be more educated about the meal because a lot of our people here are really isn't educated about what the meal is all about. So we do teaching, we hold a class, and this class is going to be held on Friday later on in the afternoon to educate the people that are wanting to know more about the meal and try to educate our young ones here that are in the community so they'll be aware of what the meal's all about. Anybody can attend. Everybody's welcome to attend the walk, attend the class. It's just like an open thing that we want to educate a lot of the people that are in our areas to let them know what the meal is all about. I know a lot of the employees there, they tell the people that it's not harmful and, you know, it's not dangerous. That's not right. They should tell the people straight out front to let them know how dangerous it is and how harmful it is to their
0: health. What kind of media coverage do you get? Is it paid attention to or does your local media ignore it? Our
3: local media we have is just a newspaper here, local, but we get a lot of medias that are out from everywhere. We reach out to a lot of the medias that will put it in their newspaper, will put it, you know, wherever they want to. They're more welcome to go live. You know, we just want whatever media we can get.
0: Where can people go to get more information and learn how they can participate?
3: protectwhitemesa.org, you can go to that website. It it shows you a lot of the pictures that was taken from a couple months ago. And there should be a video called Half-Life that shows our tribal council gave a talk on that. And it just shows like graphics and everything about the water and stuff about the meal as well. We just lost two people in our community that had cancer, and a lot of our young youth here in our community, they have asthma problems. So we're going to try to go out and do like a um, health questionnaire to let people know that what kind of health issues that is really targeting our community here, that's what our next step is to do.
0: you land the bad back. I want to thank you not only for all the work that you have been doing, but also for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Uh, thank you. Yolanda Badback of the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and one of the organizers behind the Spiritual Walk and Protest, which will be held on October 22nd. We will have links up to where you can learn more. They'll be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 590.
2: Activists, activists shout out,
0: shout out, shout-outs. Shout out. mary olson of gender and radiation project and cindy folkers of beyond nuclear are continuing their terrific series to teach radiation information for everyone the first training was wonderfully successful and now we have our second one coming up on three consecutive evenings october 25 26 27 at 7 p.m eastern time it will cover disproportionate impact of ionizing radiation on people of color and indigenous people. It will feature Ian Zabarte of the Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation as a guest speaker. They will also have a class in December on understanding the how and why of U.S. radiation regulation. For more information on all these classes, go to genderandradiation.org slash classes, and the and is spelled out, genderandradiation.org slash classes. Note that registration is required, and of course we will have the links up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 590. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 11, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Ed Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists, Dr. Paul Dorfman, genderandradiation.org, independent.co.uk, energyintel.com, union of concerned scientists, tri-cityherald.com, nbcnews.com, 44feetabovesealevel.com, cleantechnica.com, tokyo-np.co.jp, News.net, asahi.com, tvpworld.com, koreaherald.com, koreatimes.co.kr, investigate-europe.eu, newyorktimes.com, nuclear-transparency-watch.eu, mirror.co.uk, reuters.com, and, as always, the captured and compromised by the industry they are supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter for her weekly Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, and to Susan Gordon of Multicultural Alliance for a Safe Environment for her help in putting together today's featured interviews. Nuclear Hot Seat is available on all the major podcasting platforms, and you're free to subscribe there. Or you can go to NuclearHotSeat.com. In the yellow box, put in your first name and your email address, and every week you'll receive one and only one email from us, which has the link to the episode and background information on some of the stories that we cover. It's the easiest way to make certain you don't miss any episodes and can keep up with all the nuclear news. Now, you can help us out because if you see something going on around you and you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, We really need your help and appreciate your support. Anything will help. So do your holiday giving starting now. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevy and Hardest Street Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, website, and the names of any guests whose comments you use. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you... The business of uranium mining is the business of nuclear weapons. And we got that quote from Marius Paul. You have just received your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we're all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking?
1: New-